This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. U.S. presidential elections have two distinct phases. First, the election administration itself, managed entirely by each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia. And second, the counting of the state's results in Washington, D.C. Owing to the U.S. Constitution's vague guidance on the proper administration of presidential elections, Congress further defined election procedures in the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which continued to recognize the primary role of each state to designate its slate to the Electoral College and leaving Washington the largely administrative role of counting those electors. This law had remained untested until 2020, when, following an election defeat, the outgoing administration, along with a substantial number of House and Senate members of his party, sought to exploit the perceived weaknesses and ambiguities of the law by objecting to the election results of several states. Indeed, buoyed by the belief that Congress and the Vice President could use the Electoral Count Act to delay or overturn the results of the past election, rioters on January 6, 2021, stormed and occupied the Capitol building. The chaos and resentment that ensued from this event has led members of both parties to consider modernizing the Electoral Count Act in a way that reduces confusion and discourages misbegotten challenges from any losing party or candidate. What is the Electoral Count Act? How did its ambiguous language encourage the 2020 challenge to state electors? And how can legislators rewrite the law in a way that reassures the parties, the states, and the electorate that our presidential election process is sound. My guest today is constitutional scholar and research fellow Thomas Berry. Mr. Berry and his colleagues at Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies have written extensively on the history of the Electoral Count Act and the need for its reform. Mr. Berry will share with us the intent of the original act, the steps our legislators are now considering to modernize the 1887 law, and his suggestions for additional improvements that will help protect the integrity of the way we elect our president. When I return, I'll be joined by constitutional scholar, Thomas Berry. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Salvaggi, this is Hubwonk, and I'm now pleased to be joined by constitutional scholar and research fellow at Cato Institute, Thomas Berry. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Tommy. Thank you, thank you for having me. Well, we're going to go deep on a, on a topic that uh, uh, is now being debated in both houses of Congress. And I think at least the spirit of the, the debate is also being uh, in, in the minds of many Americans. So I want to take it slowly. We're going to be talking about uh, presidential elections, specifically the Electoral uh, Count Act uh, and perhaps its reform. Uh, but before we get deep on the uh, wonkiness of this particular topic, let's give a little bit of background to our, our listeners who are not constitutional scholars, who do not study this all day long. We know the Electoral College in general, it's, it's some sort of intermediary between me, the voter, uh, and how uh, the ultimate count of votes for president of the United States, how they're counted. Can you explain to us the spirit or the history of the Electoral College? How did we get here? Absolutely. So maybe the first answer to how did we get here as it relates ultimately to the Electoral Count Act is we got here through the framers not thinking a lot of problems that we're having would ever happen or not thinking we'd ever have the kind of controversies we've seen. So the original Constitution lays out and explains that states decide 
how they're going to pick their uh, electors. Today, every state has a general election. In the early days, some had their legislatures choose. It's up to each state's law to decide how it's going to do that. And then the Constitution lays out pretty specific rules for how the electors meet and vote. They each meet separately in their own states. The intention was for them not to kind of form a cabal and strategize. Obviously, that hasn't turned out to be the way it works. Nowadays, they're all pledged to people and candidates in advance. They meet in separate states, they write down who they're voting for, and they mail it to Congress. And it seems it's not entirely clear why mailing it to Congress was done, but it, it basically that was just sort of the presumption of where else is everyone going to be gathered from all 50 states to kind of have one specific locale to see who's going to be president. And so the Constitution says all groups of electors send them at the time it was 13 states. Now it's 50 plus DC, mail them to Congress. It says the president of the Senate, that's normally the vice president, if there is one, shall open them. And then it switches to the passive voice. And as any uh, as any grammar school teacher will tell you, the passive voice, the problem with the passive voice is it doesn't tell you who's doing the action. It says the votes shall then be counted, period. Doesn't say who does the counting, doesn't say anything about how the counting happens. It just assumes they shall be counted. Most likely, they didn't think there would be any controversy. It's not that hard to do math. Have a teller in the early days, it would just be a teller would read out, you know, five votes for so and so, 12 votes for so and so. But we started to have some controversies. The biggest one by far was the 1876 election, the famous Tilden versus Hayes controversy that lasted months and months, kind of the Bush versus Gore of the 19th century almost, I think it's fair to call it a full-blown constitutional crisis. The president was really not known who was going to be sworn in up to a couple days before Inauguration Day, which was March 4th at the time. Uh, multiple states were in controversy and multiple states sent competing slates of electors to Congress, a Democratic list and a Republican list, and it had to be decided which one was valid. And so after that controversy, uh, Congress really realized, OK, we need to actually have a procedure in place in advance so we're not having these solving these problems in the spur of the moment with rules made up on the spot. Because when you make up rules on the spot, there's inherently a partisan tinge to them and people will assume you're making the rules to help your side. So for about 12 years, they debated how to deal with this. And finally, in 1887, they passed the Electoral Count Act, which is what we're talking about today. And that set out the procedure for the count, that it goes in alphabetical order, the vice president reads them out. And crucially, it said, if there's any controversy over whether votes are valid or not, you have to have a challenge initiated by one member from each body, a senator and a congressman. And then you have a strict two-hour debate, and then you have a straight up or down vote whether to count it or not. And if both houses vote to toss it out, you toss it out, otherwise you count it. And the hope was that that would streamline things, it would prevent filibustering, and it would uh, allow for a, a choice one way or the other to happen the day of the count. Okay, so uh, we've had, um, okay, by my reckoning, uh, since the ratification of the Constitution, uh, 59 presidential elections, and you talked about one catastrophic or, I guess, uh, hotly disputed result. Um, I guess this is post-Civil uh, War reconstruction period in, in, in our history. Uh, so a lot was going on there. Um, so you identified the problem, which happened uh, in the 1886 election, and uh, the resolution, which is the Electoral Count Act, 
presumably we resolved the problem, um, and yet here we are. Have there been other uh, uh, challenges similar to the one you described, uh, other crises in, in choosing a president since the act was passed? None is full blown, but yes, we've had a few instances where there have been controversy and the Electoral Count Act has not seemingly not been that great at giving guidance of what's a valid challenge and what's not. In 1960, there was a long recount in Hawaii that first went to Nixon, then it went to Kennedy. Both the uh, uh, Hawaii submitted votes for both. And Nixon kind of magnanimously, he was vice president at the time. So he just magnanimously said, we'll count the votes for Kennedy. That was probably not the right thing to do because it didn't set a precedent. And it almost implied that it's the vice president's choice when under the act, it's clearly not. Uh, we then, of course, had Bush versus Gore, a big controversy. There was an attempt ch to challenge the votes for Bush from Florida. Uh, uh, during the count, but uh, there was several members of Congress challenged it, but no senator challenged it. And without a, 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 a senator joining in that challenge under the rules of the ECA, you can't have that to our debate. Uh, then in uh, 2004 election, we did have a valid uh, challenge to Bush's electors from Ohio because they finally got a senator to join, Barbara Boxer, Challenge didn't go anywhere. No one else voted to uphold it. So those votes were counted. We had similar challenges in 2016. Several uh, challenges uh, were attempted to uh, President Trump's electors from multiple states. No senator joined on. And then, of course, we have 2020, where it got a lot more attention than normal because several senators, several Republican senators objected to uh, Biden electoral votes from multiple states. And this was what uh, this was the plan they had to use the electoral count to challenge Biden electors from Arizona, Pennsylvania, a few other states. And of course, this was going on at the same time that the Capitol was breached and ransacked. Um, and in many people's view, the possibility, the, the hope or perhaps false hope that the ECA could be used to overturn the election was part of what created the fervor that led to the Capitol being ransacked. And that's a big reason for the current push we have, which is to clarify what you can and can't do under the ECA. So we're looking at you, you went uh, uh, step by step through all the problems when you have an ambiguous law that doesn't clearly define the rules. You invite people to exploit the ambiguity and perhaps um, give oxygen to those who would, would challenge a result. Um, uh, but it sounds as if uh, really the Electoral Count Act didn't really come into play in the other um, disputes you, you uh, described. Uh, for instance, the uh, uh, 2000 election, um, uh, Bush v. Gore, I think that was resolved at, at the in the courts, uh, not not elsewhere. Is there a balance? I mean, what what prerogative does uh, the court have? And uh, again, what what prerogatives um, uh, do states have? We'll, we'll take those in turn. But uh, beyond those uh, objections made by senators and congressmen in 2020, how other ways uh, are um, can we resolve a, a dispute as to who wins a presidential election? Right, exactly. That was really the intention behind the ECA was that the drafters hoped it would be the courts almost always that would resolve these issues, specifically issues related to the conduct of the general election. So if there's an allegation of fraud, an allegation that a state's rules, balloting rules weren't followed, and you know any sort of allegation that the general election was not handled in a legal, legally proper way, that's not for Congress to litigate. That's for the courts to litigate for several reasons. Courts are better equipped. They have more time. You can't 
answer these questions in two hours of debate on the House floor. Courts can hear evidence. Courts have about a month between the general election and when the electors meet. That's not a ton of time, but it's way more than Congress has. Um, and so the Electoral Count Act was designed in such a way to allow those issues to be resolved. And then it specifically has a clause called the safe harbor provision that says if a state's electors have been challenged and litigated and the final decision has been made by the state's highest court, that's final. That's binding on Congress. Congress can't second guess that and say, no, we think there was fraud in the election. So we're going to toss out these votes. So besides what, what the Electoral Count Act was intended for, it uses vague language. It says you can toss out a vote if it was not regularly given or lawfully certified. And a big problem is that that's pretty vague language. And 130 years later, we have even less of a sense of what it meant 130 years ago. But it seems clearly to have been intended to be limited to problems clearly on the face of the ballot. The electors did something wrong. They met on the wrong day. They didn't sign and certify it in the right way. Those kind of implausible but still possible flaws with the votes themselves, not relitigating the general election. So uh, let's put a finer point on it. We're going to talk about 2020. Um, this uh, uh, conversation about reforming the Electoral Count Act uh, is is public knowledge. Uh, the former president actually used uh, sort of the, the debate as to how we can improve this act as evidence that there were prerogatives that were not exercised, specifically uh, he he maintains that the vice president had some prerogative to choose uh, to uh, uh, throw out uh, certain ballots. Is there, as you say, uh, the passive voice was used, as I am right now using a passive voice. Um, uh, is there some validity to the notion that there was a prerogative uh, by the vice president? You mentioned Nixon uh, magnanimously uh, 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 almost, uh, the Hawaiian votes he gave to his uh, as his opponent. Um, but would it have been in any way, shape or form the prerogative of the vice president, the president of the Senate uh, to have uh, discarded some some votes? I don't believe so. The constitutional argument uh, basically presumes that when the when it says the president of the Senate, which is the vice president, opens the envelopes, the argument goes that, well, since he's the one holding the votes, he's naturally the one who should also be counting them, that even though it switches to the passive voice, the person holding the votes is the natural person who should count them. And there's also a quasi-originalist argument, an attempt at an originalist argument based on original practice. There are some claims that in the early 1800s, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, when he was vice president and then in the election where he was elected president, essentially made the decision on whether to count um, votes from Georgia. There was a dispute about whether they were submitted in the correct way. Uh, that's that's disputed. One is just a historical matter. It's disputed whether, in fact, Jefferson was the one making that choice or whether he was simply um, presiding over the session and saw that no member of Congress was objecting to it. But I think the bigger issue is that the Constitution is to say that the vice president has this prerogative is to say that it's so clear from the text of the Constitution that the president vice president inherently has this prerogative, even if a statute says otherwise. And I just don't think the text of the Constitution requires that. In other words, I think it leaves a gap that can be filled in multiple different ways by choice in the text of a statute. And so I think the Electoral Count Act 
validly made a choice, and I think a good choice, which is it makes more sense to put that decision in both houses of Congress rather than unilaterally in the vice president. One, it's a bad idea to have so much power in one person's hand. Two, the vice president is very often a partisan figure who's involved in the election, either running for vice president or president. And so it doesn't make sense to put such an important choice in someone with such a big stake uh, in the outcome. Yes, clearly there's a conflict of interest when you're the one uh, on the ballot. So uh, it seems an unlikely thing. So let's just take a step back. We're talking about electing, electing a president of the United States, rather important decision. And you've described it in two different phases, one at the state level where the, each state uh, governs how it, it, it conducts elections and then sends those uh, electoral votes to Washington. And Washington effectively opens the envelopes uh, and um, counts the votes. But there is a process for objecting to those votes. Uh, you alluded to a little bit earlier that uh, a single uh, congressman, a representative, and a single uh, senator can object. So let's take this all apart and let's assume that there is some sort of problem with the, the uh, slate that has been sent from a state to Washington. What's the process now? Uh, and, um, you know, credibly speaking, uh, you know, what, what is it trying to address and does it effectively do that? Yes. So the process now is that everything has to be in writing. You have to have a written objection clearly laying out your theory of what's wrong with the slate. Uh, they go one by one reading through them. So you wait alphabetically until you get to Pennsylvania or whatever state you're, you're, you want to challenge. You present the vice president with this signed paper, the senator and a member of Congress signing it. And then if it's valid, if it's signed, the two houses immediately separate. They go back to their separate uh, chambers. They debate with this two-hour time limit and a five-minute time limit on any individual member speaking. And then they vote up or down. Um, the text, again, the text of the statute is vague on what's a valid challenge and what's not. And that unfortunately has given leeway to some members to say, well, we can make any kind of challenge we want. I would say that used in the best way, it's a stopgap against corrupt um, states. So suppose some uh, state's governor just hijacks the whole process for himself, you know, pushes out the board of electors, says, I'm convinced I know who won this and just sends a slate to Congress and doesn't let anyone else send a slate to Congress. That would be the kind of, you know, pull lever in case of emergency scenario where Congress should toss out those votes, votes that were clearly fraudulent or say in an extremely unlikely event that a slate of electors was there's was bribed. There's obvious evidence. There's clear evidence that they just voted corruptly. They sold their votes. Then Congress could validly choose to toss those out. And I think if something like that happened, you would have bipartisan support for tossing those out. Um, and so that's why some people have suggested perhaps the threshold should be raised beyond just a bare majority, that if there's ever a time to validly toss out a vote, it should be so clear that both parties would agree that these votes just can't, can't be counted. Um, but the, the biggest problem with the current version and the thing that needs to be changed if it's reformed is to spell out, spell what I'm talking about now, list what is a valid reason to toss out a vote. It was it was a bribery. It was not cast on the right day. It was not certified by the board of electors, et cetera. And so the Congress knows anything besides what's on that list is not valid reason to challenge. Let's just go down that rabbit hole a little bit further. Let's assume there is a, a corrupt governor who said sends a invalid slate. Uh, there's an objection and that objection is sustained. Let's call it Pennsylvania. What happens to those votes? And then what happens to the election? 
Well, uh, under the Electoral Count Act, simply, I don't know the exact term it uses, uh, today we'll say something like discounted, tossed out. They're not part of the total. So everybody knows from like 538.com that the total number of electoral votes is 538, which normally means you need a majority, 270 to win. There is some debate, some uncertainty. If you toss out votes, does it affect the so-called denominator, the total? So if I toss out a state with 38, ele- if I toss out 38 electoral votes, um, do you still need 270 to win? To, uh, is it sort of 270 out of the 538 that were tried to be cast? Or do you now just have 500 total, so now you only need 251 to win? So one of the proposals for reforming the Electoral Count Act is to make that explicit, Uh, My own view is that if you're tossing out, if a vote was validly cast, but there's a problem with the vote itself, you should include that in the denominator, the total. If a vote was not even validly cast, say the elector was ineligible to be an elector, that should not be part of the total because the elector was really never even validly appointed. But in any event, you you do the math, you hopefully know what the denominator is, and you see whether anyone has won a majority with that new math, be it, you know, has if you're down to 500, has anyone won 251 out of 500? And if no one has won a majority, the Constitution says you go to the House of Representatives for what's called a contingent election, which is where they take the top three uh, electoral vote getters and they vote uh congressman by congressman, but with each state counting equally. So all the 50 odd members from California only have one collective vote, whoever whoever wins the majority of them. The one member from Wyoming and North Dakota and South Dakota each have one vote. And so whoever eventually wins 26 states uh, becomes president. Interesting. Thank you. And uh, I'm impressed by the your ability to do that math on the fly. There's uh, no no uh no calculator scene. <laughs> well, that's why I picked 38 <laughs> to get down to 500 even. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, fair enough. All right, so let's let's uh, talk about, we've, we've really um, explored what the challenges uh, uh, with the current uh, Electoral Count Act uh, is and how it played into the 2020 uh, um, dispute. Um, let's talk about how, uh, where we haven't already covered it, um, how the new, uh, I believe it's a Democrat uh senator uh, group that is trying to develop a uh, a new act called the electoral count modern modernization act uh, it's it's presumably going to address all the concerns we've already discussed um let's if you will take us through uh, where you see the, the key elements where what they're getting right and what in order of importance sure so i think the most important thing they're getting right is that they are listing out the valid grounds for a challenge. I think that's absolutely key because it tells the most important thing is to tell members of Congress in advance, this isn't about relitigating the election. We can't have challenges like we had in 2020, where Josh Hawley is saying, you know, there was widespread fraud in five states. And even though the courts didn't find it, we're going to throw these ballots out anyway, because we're convinced that there's fraud, that that's just should not be a valid grounds for objection. Another thing they get right, in my view, is raise the threshold to make a challenge. I think one from senator and one member of Congress is way too low. It allows crackpot challenges to take up two plus hours of Congress's time and just 
could, as we saw in 20 January, 2021, fan the flames of uncertainty. Uh, it raises the threshold to one third each. We can debate where that threshold should be. Uh, at Cato, we've suggested one fifth. Uh, wherever you end up putting that, something well above one person in each house um, is absolutely key. Uh, it also spells out uh, more explicitly how you go through litigation in the courts to uh, to settle these issues. I think that that's on the right track. I think it overcomplicates things a little bit. It creates, it gives um, what's known as a cause of action, which is kind of the right to bring a lawsuit um, to a lot of different people. I don't think that's really necessary. I think you can simply leave it to the candidates to bring the lawsuits um, related to who's a valid elector. Um, so there are some details about how it is, uh, how it would create new systems in the courts that I think uh, can be objected to. Um, but on the whole, I think uh, it, it's a good start. And I think even those who proposed it um, admit that it's this is the starting point, not the finishing line. There's also a lot, uh, you've written quite a bit on uh, ensuring the timeline. You know, we've got an early November election and we've got a uh, uh, the count uh, of those electoral ballots uh, uh, January 6th, um, uh, it would change or uh, speed up or insist that certain um, uh, resolutions occur long before we're in the position of counting ballots. Is that right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And uh, that is something else that I think is, would be a big improvement. Um, a lot of people forget that we only have had a January 20th inauguration day since 1933, the 20th amendment. Before that amendment was passed, inauguration day was March 4th. There was much more time uh, for courts to deal with these issues. And so before 1933, everything was later in the calendar. The uh, count was later, it was in February rather than January. The electors met later. Um, and so you, and the Electoral Count Act explicitly pushed later in the calendar when the electors meet met with the express uh, reason to give the courts more time. And I think we can do that today. So I believe the Modernization Act pushes it back to late December uh, when the electors meet, the, the deadline for any um, court challenges to finish up and for this final slate from each uh, state to be finalized. And I think that's an improvement. You really don't need this gap time between the electors voting and Congress meeting to count. Nothing is happening there except the ballots traveling by mail, which hopefully even the Postal Service can get that done in six days. You know, <laughs> some may have their doubts, but hopefully that's not too much to ask. Yeah. Well, um, it's so it's, Express, right? it's more important to have more time for uh, litigation, both to get it right and second, to get the appearance of getting it right. I think too many people had a talking point both this year and in 2000, Bush v. Gore, that they didn't trust the court decisions because they seemed rushed because they have this tight window of about a month. And so if it can build more trust and more faith in the litigation and in the court process, that's a good in itself because you're less likely to have, you know, the strife that we saw on January 6th. Sure, sure. Um, this might be getting too much into the weeds, but you even talk about the uh, what the act should do uh, in the eventuality that they... Um, a candidate, the candidate that gets the most electors either is either dies or there's been some talk about eligibility. If, if it's found that the, the person uh, who's been elected may be subject to uh, um, a case of sedition or something like this, uh, whether those uh, that candidate would, could be invalidated. Um, does it speak to this as well? 
Yeah, that's a great point. So the current draft, I think, does not sufficiently address this succession issue. And again, these are all very unlikely, but as we've seen, unlikely events can happen. So better to address them in advance rather than get caught off guard when they do happen. One of the the 20th Amendment, which I just mentioned, most famous for moving up Inauguration Day, much less famous for another change, but uh, could be just as important. It clarifies that if the president-elect dies before Inauguration Day, the vice president-elect gets sworn in. Before that amendment, it was kind of unknown how you would deal with that scenario. And we almost had that happen once. Uh, 1872 election, Democratic nominee Horace Greeley lost the election and then died about a month later. So luckily he didn't win and we didn't have a crisis. But if he had one, we would have had a constitutional crisis. 20th Amendment clearly lays out if the president-elect dies or fails to qualify. So that's, you know, the unlikely event that we suddenly discover, oh no, this person is not a natural born citizen, or this person is under 35, which is the minimum age in the constitution. Or as you suggested, you know, the 14th amendment bans anyone who engaged in sedition, you know, it could be a court or whoever decides that decides that this person is ineligible. In all of those scenarios, the vice president-elect is supposed to act as president. And that makes sense. And that's correct because the same party, it keeps the White House with the party that won the general election. And that's the principle behind it. So that makes democratic sense. The problem is that if the Electoral Count Act is used instead, if you toss out all the votes for that dead winner or the ineligible winner, you hand the White House to the opposing party. They're the only ones with any electoral votes left standing. So that's undemocratic, one. And two, it's kind of arbitrary, right? Because if the death happens or if the ineligibility is discovered before the count, you toss them out, the White House switches parties. If the death or the ineligibility is occurs after the count, 20th Amendment kicks in no matter what. It's your only option. Vice president-elect becomes president. So what I think Congress needs to focus on and make explicit is that you do count the votes, even if the even for a dead person or even for a not eligible person. And then you make the vice president get sworn in. Now your uh, paper even talks about, we're we're having this conversation in the context of of some legislation that really did try to uh, federalize much of the role of uh, elections uh, instead of leaving those powers with the states. You do go into some detail as to which which elements of the election the the act should not uh, take away uh, or usurp from a state level, meaning uh, hands off the state's prerogatives at a certain level. What are some of the things you want to make sure the act doesn't do with regard to states' prerogatives? Sure. So this, first of all, the, the Constitution makes clear that the states are the ones who are deciding the procedure for the votes. So uh, how the how the manner in which um, the electors are selected, and that includes the manner in which the general election is conducted. So you don't want a bill that uh, that has essentially setting out requirements for um, how the electors are decided or how the general election is conducted or that sets out standards of, of review that kind of presume that there's a right way or a wrong way to have the election. So really the standard should be state law governs and then whether the election was valid or not is judged against the pre-existing state law. So the proper role for the the federal government is really just to make sure that the rules are fair and decided in advance. So a proper role is to say, whatever rules you set, don't change them after the game. So I think it would be totally valid to say, uh, uh, state, you can't suddenly 
after election day say, you know what, never mind. We'd actually prefer to have our legislature decide who who our electors are because we don't like how the general election went. That should be out. So I'm totally in favor of setting a hard date, you know, November first Tuesday in November is election day. Whatever procedure you have in place on that day is what you stick with. No, no changing the rules if you don't like it. Now, um, we, we, I mentioned at the, at the top of the show that uh, this is uh, an initiative. This uh, Electoral Count Modernization Act is a, is a Democrat initiative. Uh, but there are some uh, Republicans joining in the uh, uh, conversation, in the debate, a, a rare uh, incidence of a bipartisanship. Uh, we've talked a little bit, you and I just now, about the benefits of having a, a more clear process uh, in that it doesn't tempt um, any kind of uh, uh, let's say, frivolous challenge. Um, say more about why you think uh, it's really in the Republicans' interest to uh, join the fight and ensure that this reform moves forward. Absolutely. So any rule that you're setting in advance, any any flawed rule, you never know who's going to exploit it or which side is going to benefit from it. So all of the calls in 2020 for Mike Pence to seize power, overturn the election unilaterally, you know, toss out votes, those calls just as easily could come to a Democratic vice president in a future election. Um, fair is fair, whichever side might benefit from it. And Republicans often voice support for the Electoral College in general. There's a lot of calls, uh, many of it coming from the left, to toss out the Electoral College system entirely, go to just a nationwide popular vote. I think Republicans have valid concerns, um, valid reasons to prefer keeping the Electoral College system, ensure that you have reasonable that people care about smaller more rural states that was the framers original intention and a robust and fair electoral count act is key to maintaining faith in the electoral college system the more people think this is a, a game that can be rigged the more likely they are to maybe say why not just toss out the whole system entirely and go to a nationwide popular vote and so i think if republicans want to support keeping an electoral college, they should want a, a legal framework that makes clear that we're going to uh, respect the outcome of the vote as decided by the electoral college, as decided by validly selected and chosen electors. Now, the election is, the presidential election is still two and a half years away. Uh, not that far. Um, we're in the uh, debate stage of these reforms to the Electoral College. Is there a deadline um, before which the act must be passed uh, in order to be binding on this upcoming election? Um, you know, is it if the clock is ticking, what's what's our deadline? Uh, legally, there's two answers, legally and politically. Legally, I don't think there's really any deadline other than Election Day 2024 itself. Um, you know, the rules, it would not be ideal to change the rules of the road that close to it. But I think legally, whatever rules are in place on that day is all that matters. Politically is a very different question. The closer you get to the heat of battle, especially once it's known who the candidates are, in my view, the less likely it is that something's going to be passed. Everyone's going to be more risk averse. Everyone's going to think, is this going to hurt us more than it helps us? Uh, you could have a particular candidate who's not a fan of reforming the Electoral Count Act, uh, who's a candidate for one or both parties. 
so I think it's much better. I think pragmatically, it would be much better to pass it this year before even the midterm election, um, because midterm is the unofficial start of the presidential campaign, essentially the day after the midterms. And so right now, when we don't know who the nominee, uh, at least of the Republicans, is going to be, uh, when we don't have any specific controversies already ramping up about how states choose their electors or about early voting or any of that, uh, this is the best time to kind of stay in the veil of ignorance um, when both sides should realize it's in their rational self-interest um, to to create rules that are that are fairer for both sides and and are more likely to benefit than than harm both sides in the long run. So if we are ever sober and rational, this is this is the moment we become gradually less so as as election day approaches. Um, I'm I'm sure we've piqued the interest of our listeners on this uh, topic. I've said I've enjoyed your writing and research on the issue. Um, for our listeners who want to learn more or follow you or, or keep up to date with the progress of this reform of this very very important electoral college modernization act, where can they find your work on the, on the topic? Absolutely. Um, I'm just one of the folks at Cato who's been interested in this. I'd highly commend the work of Andy Craig, my colleague, uh, a writer at Cato. Uh, he, he, he's been writing a series of blog posts at the Cato at Liberty blog. So I'd, I'd encourage everyone to, to search Cato at Liberty and you'll find the blog. Um, you can also search. So if you go to my page, Cato.org slash people slash Thomas uh, hyphen Barry. You'll see all, all of my writings in general, um, in, including my, my blog posts on this. Or you can just go to Cato and, and search uh, Electoral Count Act and, and you'll see uh, the long list uh, uh, the, of, of writings by, by me, uh, by my colleague Andy Craig, and also my colleague Walter Olson uh, has, has written in particular about uh, why Republicans and people of all stripes should support this uh, election reform uh, in particular. And as uh, as you've said, we have one proposal now. Uh, it seems likely that in the near future, we'll have a second proposal by a group uh, led by Susan Collins and Joe Manchin. And we're likely to have one from the House as well. Um, so we're planning to respond in detail to each of those, lay out what we think works and doesn't work. And hopefully this is going to be an active process uh, through the next, next couple of months uh, when Congress is likely to be considering and perhaps voting on them. Well, I, I, maybe it's too early to celebrate, but I'd like to just rejoice in the notion that we can actually, in Congress, agree on something uh, and uh, reach across the aisle and find a, a solution, a potential solution for what had seemed like an intractable issue. Uh, so um, uh, this is very exciting, I'm sure, to our listeners on both sides of the aisle. Thank you very much for taking your valuable time with us, uh, Tommy. You've been a real uh, fund of information and, and a, a subject matter expert like no other. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. That's that's too kind. I really enjoyed it. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us and Pioneer. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help it make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Mm-hmm.